And thank you again, everyone, for coming out on the last day, last session. Um, the title of my presentation has changed a bit, and it also, I think, reflects the nature of this work, which is really a work in progress. And I was very happy to be included in this conference. This War and Peace theme really prompted me to look into, and Frank, whom I've never thought about in this sense before. So I'm very um, eager after to hear your comments and reflections on this work as well. Anne Frank's The House Behind, first published in Amsterdam in 1947, and in the United States five years later as Anne Frank, The Diary of a Young Girl, chronicles the more than two years that Anne, her family, and four other Jews spent in hiding in Amsterdam in the annex above Otto Frank's fruit pectin and spice factory during the Nazi occupation of the Netherlands during World War II. In 1955, building on the success of the diary, Francis Goodrich and Albert Hackett adapted the work into a Pulitzer Prize Award, New York Drama Critics Circle Award, and Tony Award-winning play, The Diary of Anne Frank. And in 1959, they wrote the screenplay for the Hollywood film. No translation would be possible if in its ultimate essence, Benjamin wrote, it strove for likeness of the original. In The Diary of Anne Frank, the theatrical translation does not replace the original, but rather transforms it. This paper, therefore, focuses on the Broadway adaptation of Anne Frank's wartime diary, not as a transgression against the text, but rather it considers the ways in which the hiding spaces and Frank herself are translated and represented during the post-war period through shifts and transitions in spatial constructions, both real and imagined, by the playwrights, as well as the set designer, Boris Aronson, and highlights the possible reasons conditions, and effects of their choices. In particular, the paper considers the ways in which the representation of Frank and her diary relate to two important post-war phenomena, the cultural rise of American adolescents, particularly girls, and the status of American Jews. Anne Frank's transformation into what one critic deemed, quote, an American adolescent speaks to the unprecedented cultural and economic autonomy teenage girls enjoyed in the post-war United States. The Diary of Anne Frank also presented an accessible and popular image of post-war Jewishness within a universalized context. In this sense, Anne's hiding space may be related to more popular notions of teenage girls and Jewish culture in the post-war period, exemplifying how one reimagines a wartime space during peace. The Diary of Anne Frank opened at Broadway's Court Theater on October 5, 1955, and ran for 717 performances. Produced by Kermit Bloomgarten and directed by Garson Kanan, it starred Joseph Shield Kraut as Otto Frank and Susan Strasberg as Anne Frank. And Boris Aronson designed uh, the sets. Born in 1900, the son of the Grand Rabbi of Kiev, Aronson studied art and design in Kiev and uh, modern painting in Moscow. At the same time that he was uh, in Moscow, the radical rejection of theatrical realism had found expression in the new Soviet theater. Aronson sought out the director, Alexander Tyrov, whose Camry Theater advocated new forms of staging, set, and costume design. From 1917 to 1918, Aronson apprenticed with the theater's principal designer, Alexandra Exter, whose international associations and travel 
helped disseminate avant-garde ideas among Russian artists. At the Camre, Exter sought to represent the emotional essence of a play through symbolic constructions. She worked in three dimensions, highlighting volume and structure. Her sets consisted of a variety of levels, platforms, stairs, and ladders, and permitted actors to move freely in space and to employ a range of expressive emotions, techniques Aronson would adopt in his own set designs. In 1923, Aronson emigrated to the United States via Paris and Berlin and found work in the Yiddish art theater in New York City. There, he designed sets and costumes that defined the environment of the production, allowed for varied movements of the actors, and revealed the full mechanics of the theatrical set through visible set changes. <coughs> in the musical adaptation of Abraham Goldfaden's play The Tenth Commandment, shown here, Aronson employed ladders and fire poles for the actors to use in his vision of hell, which is set within the human brain and evoking what in Aronson said in his own words, an Essex Street sweatshop factory on a hot summer's day. By the early 1950s, Aronson had established himself as one of Broadway's leading designers. He collaborated with director Harold Prince and composer Stephen Sondheim and won eight Tony Awards for Best Scenic and Set Design and 13 Tony Award nominations, including one for his scenic designs for The Diary of Anne Frank. Although based on a historical document and a real space, the sets for The Diary of Anne Frank demonstrate broad aesthetic judgment by Aronson, while still being rooted in many documentary-like details, an approach that critic Frank Rich has deemed atmospheric realism. The designer worked closely with both the director and the playwrights. In a pre-production letter, now housed in the New York Public Library for the Performing Arts, the director stipulated changes in the spatial configuration of the annex to be used in the play. For example, while in hiding, the residents inhabited various parts of the building when it was empty, that is, when uh, no one was in the building in the evenings or on Sundays, the residents could leave the annex and go into the offices where Otto Frank had his business so they could move around the house. But in the play, um, the director wished for the characters to instead be confined to one central location. This was meant to increase the theatrical sense of smallness, he felt, which linked to the oppressiveness of hiding. Aronson drew inspiration for the sets not only from Frank's own writing, but also from the space itself. Kanan and the playwrights went on a tour of the Amsterdam building led by Otto Frank, shown here. And here we have the playwrights and uh, there's um, the director in the cap. The director went so far even to spend the night in the annex to get a sense of its sounds and its light and its atmosphere. And to assist Aronson, Kanan commissioned a series of photographs of the annex, especially for him, for Boris Aronson. A Dutch photographer documented the largely denuded space, including its fittings and remaining bits of furniture. And the documentation is really quite extensive, um, taking photographs of floorboards and wallpaper and light fittings. And you get a bit of a sense of that here. Aronson cites uh, Anne Frank's inability to be alone, the extremely limited space of the quarters, and their, quote, unbearable lack of privacy as one of his primary motivations in the set design. Frank herself, whose room is pictured here, often commented on the claustrophobic feeling of the annex and the despair it engendered. She described it as stifling, sluggish, and leaden. 
Every day our lives, every day our living space grows smaller. Will it be over soon enough, she wrote, before we all suffocate? To convey the small scale, Aronson consolidated the space and designed a single set rather than the multiple scene, multiple set play the writers originally requested. No longer a series of spaces and rooms, the annex was transformed on stage into an open space on a reduced scale. To add to the illusion of the attic's height, Aronson built the entire set on a platform above the stage level, stage level and accessible by a visible trapdoor. Ladders between the spaces, you can see here as um, a ladder coming up from the stage and another ladder that goes up to the upper part. Ladders between the spaces shown here allowed for easy movement for the actors, a practice he had learned in Moscow, and it also increased the sense of verticality in the set, which mimicked the uh, building in Amsterdam, which is a several-story building. In the final design, Aronson's set consists of only three spaces, Peter Van Pels, a teenage boy also hiding with the Frank family, and Frank's room, and the central communal living space. Throughout the performance, the actors remained on stage in full view of the audience, mirroring their real-life inability to physically leave, and creating, in the words of one critic, a living set. The constrained setting vividly conveys the idea of physical confinement and emotional stress. The rich maroon and brown color schemes evoke, according to Aronson, the city of Amsterdam through its association with Rembrandt's palette and projects a sense of heaviness and melancholy in their somber tones. And interestingly, at a panel uh, this morning, we had a bit of a discussion about color. And um, this watercolor is the only image that I was able to find of the set. All of the um, pictures of the set are in black and white. So this gives you a sense of some of the, the color tone in the palette. The panoramic perspective of the rooftops is drawn from Canaan's photographic commission of the annex and its views of Amsterdam from its windows and roof. And these are views that, uh, although one can see them out the windows now, these were views that the residents in the annex would never look at, right? Because the windows were always closed and dark. But this, these are uh, the views from the set, from the, the roof and from the attic. In the set, the vista outside is that of the audience, that is, rather than that of the annex inhabitants themselves, looking out over the roof to the city beyond. Aronson's sharply geometric design helps, in his words, to emphasize the isolation of the occupants from the outside world, contrasting their confinement to the vivid city life going on below and around them. Aronson drew on the remaining fittings and decoration of the annex, using such documentary details as the cooking stove and sink, located on the annex's upper floor, shown here at, um, is this here left? And here, the main image, um, at right is Aronson's interpretation of these remnants and remains reincorporated and recombined into the set. To denote the passage of time, Aronson added props and furnishings and other details. In this way, the set grows increasingly attractive and livable throughout the play, while the inhabitants grew shabbier and thinner. The set, therefore, becomes another character in the play, with Aronson designing every detail that gradually transformed the bare attic into a makeshift but civilized and decorated home. 
And the passage of time as well can also be read through the characters' costumes to give the impression that Anne was outgrowing her clothes, for example. The costume designer, um, Helen Pons, designed a set of identical um, dresses, which were made smaller and smaller throughout the play, to give the impression she's getting bigger. And of course, you can see as well when the residents arrive at the annex um, in the first act, they're finely dressed um, and here uh, on the other side at the start of Act Two, their clothes display signs of wear and neglect. Anne herself decorated the annex while in hiding, and she continued to update the space throughout the many months she spent there. She used pictures from film magazines brought to her each week, and she filled her room, shown here, with cutouts from those magazines, as well as postcards and other ephemera, and transformed the walls, she wrote, into one gigantic picture that reflected the varied interests she held. In her room, for example, pictures of Leonardo da Vinci and Rembrandt hung alongside Greta Garbo, Ginger Rogers, and royal portraits. In the set, note here how Aronson has elaborated on that idea. He amplifies the decoration and fills the wall to capacity. He adorns it with pictures, some matching those found in Anne's annex bedroom. And how we use our pointer, for example, um, Leonardo da Vinci or the royal family. Um, and like Anne did in her own annex bedroom, he continuously added images throughout the play to signify um, the passage of time I've been discussing. And here you can see the transformation from a blank wall, this is when the play begins, into a decorated wall. And um, I argue that by this emphasis on these pictures as well and this sort of blowing up of them, uh, Anne Frank as a teenager is also being emphasized by her interest in film and gossip magazines, and I'll get back to this in just a second. In combination with that, with these introduction of, of these images, is the introduction of a dressing table in the set, shown here. An object nowhere mentioned in the diary. With its inclusion, a simple table holding a small round mirror and lamp, and a small wooden stool, Aronson transforms Anne's room into what would have been recognized by the American post-war audience as a space, albeit humble, as that of a teenage girl. Anne's room mirrors the larger constructed narrative of the theatrical Anne, a character who, in the words of one contemporary critic, endured a metamorphosis into an American adolescent. The writers portrayed Anne, who in fact read biographies of Galileo and studied Greek mythology, as a, quote, young girl like other young girls who wriggled, giggled, and chattered, essentially transforming Frank's account of wartime hiding and anti-Semitism into an idealized coming-of-age adolescent tale. Part of this had much to do with the rise of teenagers themselves. In the two decades following World War II, adolescents in the United States, and particularly girls, gained unprecedented power as consumers and tastemakers. From books to plays to films, the media typically presented teenage girls as plucky, social, and fun-loving. In the diary, the diary itself, when it was marketed, uh, it was marketed directly um, to teenagers, and the cover of the first English edition promotes the work as a quote, and this is printed on the front cover, an extraordinary document of adolescence. The design and decoration of the post-war teenage girl's room was a frequent topic in teenage and home decorating magazines. 
gendered through both design and the types of objects within it, the room was closely associated with the process of maturation and served as an effective signifier of the transition from childhood into early adulthood. Pictured here is an advertisement from Seventeen magazine for Bates uh, fabric and bedspreads featuring a teenage girl at her dressing table whose mirror, the roundness of the mirror and scale, is similar to the one found in the set of the Diary of Anne Frank. And note too, um, the magazines on the, on the desk. The dressing table in particular, an object intricately linked to women's space and bodily adornment, assumed a significant role in the post-war period where girls could perform beauty rituals in their own private space. In the play, Anne's use of her room as a secluded haven in the midst of a markedly unprivate space reflected these common cultural characterizations. At one point in the play, Anne locks herself in the room and readies herself for a romantic annex visit with Peter Van Pels, the boy um, who was also in hiding, by grooming herself at the makeshift dressing table as she talks to her sister, uh, Margot. Even a modest, unadorned dressing table such as this one would fulfill its ideological and material function. Throughout the post-war period, 17 featured articles on dressing tables made from reclaimed furniture or presented it as do-it-yourself projects. In fact, some tastemakers saw these somewhat reductive versions of a par as particularly appropriate for young girls who had yet to mature into women. In other words, they exemplify a new object type, the teenage dressing table. And the inclusion of the dressing table in Anne's room connects Anne to a current and accessible cultural ideal. Evoking the iconic mid-century teenager, one theater critic went so far as to complain, quote, Broadway Anne Frank has turned out to be not much more than the Jewish Corliss Archer. And I want to qualify that statement um, because I think it's a very specifically uh, cultural and period reference. And this is a picture Corliss Archer uh, started out as a radio figure in the early 1940s, and she was really the archetypical teenage girl. So the radio, city, uh, radio series ran for however eight or nine years, and then in 1943, it was a Broadway play, which I think is also interesting with the comparison of Frank's play. It was then made into a film in 45, starring uh, Shirley Temple at the age of 17. And then it went on to become a television series. So to call Anne, the Broadway Anne Frank turned out to be not much more than the Jewish Corliss Archer is a very um, loaded statement on the part of this particular critic. Okay. So if the dressing table signifies Anne Frank's adolescence, then another object, the menorah, does her Jewishness. Shown here in the play, the menorah appears as a central object, and its large, almost oversized scale and prominent position on the annex table throughout much of Act One reinforces its centrality. Like the teenage dressing table, the celebration of the Hanukkah holiday was an American post-war phenomenon, which served to assimilate American Jews to the Christmas season culture. In the diary, Anne reports how the annex residents, and this is a quote from the diary, didn't make much of a fuss over the holiday. But in the play, the celebration marks a pivotal scene that ends act one. And also in the play, when one annex resident yells to another more assimilated resident, what kind of Jew are you that you don't know Hanukkah? It reflects the holiday's growing significance for the post-war American Jewish community a significance not shared by Anne Frank's community at the time. 
Traditionally a minor festival day, Hanukkah and its candlelighting rituals signified for many um, American Jewish leaders an important revival of Jewishness. As Jenna Weissman Jocelyn notes, at a time when the number of American Jews observing Jewish dietary laws and the Sabbath decreased, Hanukkah enjoyed a significant revival. The menorah, the antidote to the Christmas tree, and other items like dreidels figured into the refashioning of the holiday as lively, fun, and child-oriented at a time when an emphasis on children and their material needs increased. Toy manufacturers and Judaic importers capitalized on and encouraged the growing importance of the holiday by introducing Hanukkah-related games, books, records, and decorations. And here uh, is just an example of this enormous uh, dreidel. Um, and you can see I, I particularly like this image because of the way it's positioned and the verticality and the way the children are gathered around and the gifts underneath. It really does resemble a Christmas tree. I mean, this is the whole, the whole presentation of it, I think, is very uh, deliberate. The menorah in particular became, according to Simon J. Bronner, a Jewish marker of identity. One survey revealed that Hanukkah menorahs were the top-selling products in Judaica gift shops, and Jewish household guides encouraged the use of multiple uh, menorahs throughout the home, even in non-holiday seasons. So these would be displayed year-round. In the play, however, Anne's Jewish identity could only go so far. The director demanded that the Hanukkah songs led by Anne, and in the play, Anne is really um, central in the Hanukkah scene, giving out gifts and, and singing, that the songs be sung in English as opposed to the original Hebrew, which he thought would serve to alienate the audience. After the success of the play, Anne Frank's legacy continued to grow. In 1958, she appeared on the cover of Life magazine, and the following year, the diary was made into a Hollywood film, helping to ensure its broad popularity. In 1960, the annex opened to the public. Otto Frank, when asked if the space should be furnished, answered, no. During the war, everything was removed, and I want it to remain as it is. Empty and existing outside periodization the largely bare spaces of the annex speak more loudly through absence than their reconstruction ever could. Judith Donison has noted how through its adaptation, the diary turns into one of the first popular and universal symbols of the Holocaust. As such, critics have condemned the play for what they consider to be a betrayal, complaining that its theatricality undermined the horror of the event and diminished the terror of surviving in the annex. Critic Cynthia Uzzik, for example, cites how the play infantilized, Americanized, homogenized, and sentimentalized Anne Frank. She found her universalization so repugnant that it might have been better, she provocatively suggested, had the diary been burned, vanished, or lost. As Elie Wiesel has written, the enormity of the Holocaust lies beyond language, and any attempt to describe it deforms it. But with that understood, it is nevertheless uh, still instructive, I think, to think about what these material adaptations can mean and tell us. The sets and dramatic emphasis of the diary of Anne Frank transform a historical document into a theatrical artifact. Benjamin holds that, no no, holds that to articulate the past historically does not mean to recognize it the way it really was. Translation, by its very nature, distorts. In the play, director Garson Kanan made a point to emphasize the diary's optimism. For example, to assure its success, he encouraged the playwrights to add more comedy, 
while eliminating references to the Holocaust. He likewise urged Aronson, the set designer, to not graphically emphasize in his sets what he called a tragic tone. I do not regard this as a sad play, he explained, but rather as an exalting comment on the human spirit. Anne Frank's hiding space, as described in her diary, is shaped by the reality of war. On stage, however, that space and Anne Frank herself is reimagined. Aronson's set design, with its amplification of the material signifiers of Frank's adolescence, including the dressing table, and the centrality of the menorah, particularized the play and told the story of Anne Frank, perhaps in the only visual material language that post-war America could understand. Thank you.